Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. I'm Jeremiah Jenny, and with me across Beijing, at a safe distance, one might even say a social distance, my co-host, David Moser. David, how you doing? Uh, really good. Just a timestamp for the podcast here. It's late in January, which means the, the Beijing Winter Olympics are coming up around the corner. Uh, and as with the, every time there's an Olympics in Beijing, they invite lots of foreigners on the state media to, to talk about the Olympics or just be a foreign face there, or if you can speak Chinese into, in the Chinese media. And I don't know much about the Olympics, but I fall into the latter category. So I've been invited for several uh, talking head shots talking about the Olympics as a foreigner. And every single appointment or interview has either been canceled or delayed, rescheduled, or made virtual instead of in person because of COVID. Just from my little glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes, there's quite a lot of disruption and chaos here. So wouldn't it be great if we had someone on our podcast who was could speak authoritatively about the Olympics, who might give us some background and insight into these problems that Beijing has with its Olympics? Well, David, thank you for such a spontaneous and smooth segue, <laughs> because in fact... <laughs> we're really we're really pleased to be joined today by Mark Dreyer. For nearly 14 years, if it's about sports and there's a China angle, Mark has been the uh, go-to Lao Wai. He is known as the China Sports Insider, worked for Sky Sports, Fox Sports, AP Sports, lots of sports, covered major sporting events on five continents, including three, soon to be four Olympic Games. He has his own podcast. He co-hosts the China Sports Insider podcast, which is based on his website, China Sports Insider, which used to be called the Leaning Tower way back in the day, covering sports news in China. He's been here since 2007 and is the author of a new book, Sporting Superpower, an insider's view on China's quest to be the best, just released this year. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Dreyer. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm pretty speechless after that, so I'll just have to take a, a minute to, uh, to calm myself down. Well, you know, take as much time as you need because you know, we're really <laughs> pleased to have you on the, on the pod. And David and I just finished this book. And, you know, it's, it, it's really, I'm a sports fan. I'm a China fan. David is a, a China fan. I mean, this, for, this a lot of these stories that you talk about in this book, which covers kind of the period between the Olympics, I remember the headlines, but it was so, so fascinating to kind of get behind the scenes. And I have to ask you, you know, there's so many stories, so many anecdotes uh, but I'd love to ask what if you had to pick like three of the biggest stories from the past decade, there were the three stories that of this book, we have to absolutely focus on what would be those three stories in your mind? I'll start with 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 one that I, I kind of go at possibly a little bit too long. I had one of my editors say, wow, that was quite a rant you did there, Mark. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I left it in. It was it was it was Chinese soccer and Chinese soccer says, says so much about China really, uh, and the way things are run, and you know, I think one of the threads that I that I try to have in the book is is the way that you can't really separate politics, business, and sports. And and when push comes to shove, as it often does here, sports is a distant third in terms of the the priorities here. And I think one of those one of those examples uh, in soccer is when there was basically uh, a ban on tattoos. Uh, and now this is a uh, uh, so soccer players were not able to to have tattoos or if they had they had to wear these these sleeves to cover them up and this is pretty difficult for for, for one of the guys there's a there's a left back who was rumored to be interested um, Chelsea were interested in him at one point he's a pretty good player Jang Li Pang and and um, he has he has tattoos all the way up his neck and so basically it was uh, without wearing some kind of neck brace he was mysteriously injured for uh, for several national team games while this <laughs> while this was kind of under the microscope. 
But, you know, this kind of fits into some other cultural, you know, crackdowns, if you will, on, you know, there'd been uh, things, hip hop music was seen as bad. And so that this was seen as, you know, subculture hip hop music. And there were things about you can't have tattoos and all that sort of stuff, you know, on TV. And so this got translated into the world of sports, starting with soccer. Reportedly, because, you know, the man at the top was quite interested in this and didn't want to be seeing this on his uh, on his screens. So we had this bizarre thing where where um, players just suddenly started wearing long sleeves in in uh, excruciatingly hot conditions uh, because they weren't allowed to wear, they weren't allowed to to expose their tattoos. Now you might think this is kind of a bit silly, but the the way that the thing that most frustrated me about this was the fact that you know soccer is a game where you have to you have to express yourself. You have to have freedom of expression on the pitch. The best players are the most unpredictable, the most creative. If you know what someone's going to do with the ball at his or her feet, then it's easy to defend against, right? And some of the best players in the world have tattoos. It doesn't seem to affect their soccer ability. And, and I think it doesn't mean having a tattoo makes you better. But tattoos is, 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 is a way that, you know, young people today, and I, I sound old when I'm saying that, but, but, you know, they like to express themselves. It's, it's part of who they are. It's part of their creativity. And I do think that when you start to stifle that creativity off the pitch, it's going to translate into stifling the creativity on the pitch. Now, perhaps it's a bit of a stretch, but I do think that there is something in there. Um, you know, if, if the players are going onto the pitch thinking, well, what happens if I do a sliding tackle and my tattoo shield sleeve you know like like slips out of place um i'm gonna get in trouble i'm gonna get substituted off you know this is gonna be like playing on their minds it's the last thing that china's players need they need every advantage not not to not to heighten these disadvantages that they're already at because they're already kind of playing catch up from a from a from a, from an ability point of view if, if we're being honest so that was just kind of one of the ways where i think politics such an unnecessary way uh, sort of interfered with with sports. I mean, one of the things you talk about is the challenges that even though Xi Jinping is the China's biggest fan and has kind of pushed for China to achieve a level of proficiency on the soccer field commensurate with the China's rise as an economic power, this hasn't really happened. And, you know, we live in Beijing. We hear this all the time from every single person, every single football or soccer fan we meet. You know, we hear, I've been hearing it for years. You're like, how is this possible? We've got 1.4 billion people. Surely, surely the math suggests we can find 11 dudes who can play this game. Like, my apartment building has more people than all of Belgium. Somehow they're ranked number one. Like, what gives? And I, one thing I've had, and maybe, it, and Mark, tell me why I'm wrong. You know, for first, you know, for taking like individual sports like weightlifting or diving or rep- sports where you can have repetitive practice over and over again, make someone great. China tends to excel at those, but for team sports, you got to start with like you know, 22 five-year-olds running around in one single group following the soccer ball around the field and kind of go from there. It's, it takes a long time to kind of build that kind of awareness. And I, I don't know if the way the system is structured, do we have like packs of five-year-olds running around after the soccer ball so that one of those 22 will emerge as like a potential, you know, future national team player? Or is, or is it way more complicated than that? It's complicated and it's simple. You know, at, at a simple level, China is a top-down society and soccer is, it has to be a bottoms-up approach. It has to be. It has to be built from the grassroots. So those two things fundamentally are in conflict. And that's why uh, I think China has been unable to sort of solve this problem. We do have a lot of kids running around uh, at the youth levels. We have seen growth. We have seen progress. But China 
you know, and, 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 you know, China expects and demands results instantly. You know, you guys will know, like, like the, 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 the cycle of the natural cycle of officials, you know, it's kind of three years here and four years there, and then you get a promotion. So why are you going to put in place a system that will only bear fruit 20 years from now? Right. But you have to do, you have to start with a five-year-old to wait till they're, you know, 25. That's when they're going to be at their peak. That's really when China should be showing improvement if everything is followed to a T for 20 years. So if if you want to, you know, and the football experts will all tell you this, but, you know, the, the if you want to kind of measure China's progress, you can't look at the senior team because it, we've only, we're only five years into this. You've got to be looking at, you know, the 10 and the 12 and the 14-year-olds and see where they are. Um, and I think there are some encouraging signs there. But again, uh, everyone's expecting, well, well, China's throwing so much money at this. Why are we still ranked, you know, in the lower reaches of the top 100? Yeah, that this brings up an issue I wanted to ask you about, which is the, uh, the sort of different system, the sort of state-run system for the athletes that's a bit different from Western countries. And I know with soccer in particular, I, th- I think they've they've done a, a extended effort to sort of poach co- coaches and people from overseas, paying them like a million dollars to teach soccer at some private schools and things like that. I don't know the details. What is it like for the for the Chinese athletes to sort of to sort of grow up and sort of develop inside that? System and you talk about in the book about some people who have tried to get out of it. Like, uh, well, Peng Shui is an example you give, uh, who who went to wanted to fly solo, as you call it, to sort of get more autonomy, get more of the prize money, <laughs> obviously. But as you say, soccer is going to take a decade, two decades before it bears fruit. But what is it like? For the athletes. Oh, the other thing about uh, that you mentioned is uh, I can't remember which athlete it was. It was interviewed, and they said, "How do you? Are your parents here?" And she said, "I don't know." Yeah. And then they yeah. said, uh, "And she said, I haven't seen them since I joined in the national team." She hadn't seen her own parents in a year. Maybe talk a little bit about the training and the conditions that these athletes develop and grow up under. Well, the system has worked for China in certain sports. You know, it, if you throw enough people into you know a gymnastics factory or a diving factory, you know. Whoever comes out of the top end typically wins Olympic gold. China has has done this very successfully. And, you know, we, there were 51 gold medals. Three were later taken away, but 51 gold medals at the time of the 2008 Olympics. I mean, that's a phenomenal success. When China looks at other sports and it doesn't see success, they think, well, we're not doing it the way we've always done it, which is, you know, just put more people at it, throw more people at and train them harder. This is a real problem. I, I talked to, to coaches uh, uh, throughout all sports and, and Chinese athletes as well are now kind of coming around to this. But it's not about training harder. It's about, you know, working smarter, recovery and nutrition. You know, these are things we didn't know about decades ago, but we do now. So it's not a question of like, like the Chinese soccer team lost. So let's make them run twice as many laps tomorrow. Like that's actually negatively impacting their their development. Uh, there was a young promising, I forget his name, uh, several years ago, a Ch- Chinese basketball kid. And they thought, well, you know, perhaps he could be drafted into the NBA. And a coach was telling me, look, the best thing for him, he needs to get out of here as soon as possible because they just overtrain and overtrain. Joined to Stefan Marbury, uh, you know, the NBA player who's now coaching here with the um, Beijing's uh, ro- uh, Royal Fighters, the, the second team, not the Ducks. And, uh, you know, he was saying like his leaders are basically constantly pushing him to, to train his players longer he says he's got it down from six to four hours but it's he it thinks it's still too much right and so, so so we see this all the time um to give you another example 
Shuli Jia, who, who's, a, who's a, a sailing champion. She won Olympic gold in, in London. Just spoke to her on the podcast a, a few weeks ago, actually. She carried the flag uh, for, for, for China at the closing ceremony of the London Olympics. And she noted that at the Rio Olympics, there was, a, there was the eldest sailor there was in his ninth Olympics. And she just thought, you know, I had terrible injuries throughout my career. But if I'd been trained and treated properly and managed properly, I could still be competing. I could maybe do nine Olympics. And she only managed to do two or three. And so she sort of such a wasted opportunity. And I think she was the perfect example of someone who felt incredibly grateful towards the Chinese system because they had provided her with this opportunity, you know, to fund her, to, to do sailing in a way that she'd never been able to, to, to afford. Her parents would never have been able to afford herself. But at the same time, she gave up so much. You know, I think the way she phrased it, she, we, we sort of give up our freedom and, and we have to take orders from the state. You know, she went, to, she went trained away from home at the age of nine or 10 and she said she was crying, you know, endlessly for six months. However, now today, she wouldn't have changed it because, you know, she's sort of it clearly conflicted. Lee Na tells a story in her book where she, again, she was she was plucked from from you know her hometown and and sent away. And basically, I think her dad had to trick her to say, oh, "I'm coming with you." And then at the last minute, he didn't get on the train, and it's like it's it like it brutal. Without that base of you know the state support, playing salaries, uh, paying salaries, and and providing for everything. I don't think that these athletes, whether it's Lina, uh, whether it's Shuli Jai, whether it's any of the others, you know, you can make a case they wouldn't be Olympic champions without that support. But I, I do think that there needs to be that balance between the Chinese system and, and these kind of more modern training systems, which will be better for the athletes and ultimately better for China in the long run. You know, one of the people I think about this, and you mentioned him in your book, it's hard to write a book about sports and not talk about Yao Ming, who's now kind of part of the system. But I also think too, you know, one of the things about Yao Ming's career was that in his prime, he was playing basketball year round. His responsibilities to the Rockets and his responsibilities to the national team. And then once he got hurt, he got, you know, he had a foot injury. And as, as anyone who follows the NBA will tell you, they go back to like, you know, people like Bill Walton. Once the big guys get injuries in their feet, that's always, uh, you know, that's a real career threatening situation. He played on those injuries for years and ultimately probably shortened his his actual NBA career somewhat because of that. I mean, I think it's a good example of what you're talking about there. No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, he was never the same. And, and of course, it, it was such a shame China ultimately lost because, you know, he was such a big star for them at the Olympics. But basically, soon after that, uh, he was never really the same. And he was, I think, still getting, you know, voted to the all-star um, team for a couple of years, but not able to play the games because <laughs> it was the fan vote and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, who knows? But maybe if he'd been managed slightly better and not being overtrained earlier in his career when he was in China, maybe he would have had a longer career. You know, speculation, of course. But but we've seen similar stories elsewhere. This kind of, you, you've alluded to this already. I think it's another big or big story in the book that there is this difficulty in separating politics from sports between sports administration and pol the political reality, and simply even. In terms of the organization separating the political apparatus from the sports apparatus, this is something that is part of Chinese society, is part of Chinese politics. But it really feels like this is one of the things. Do you feel this is really holding China's ambitions back in the sporting arena? I know that's a big question and very general. Or is it something that actually has some benefit? I would say it's certainly more obvious to 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 pinpoint the the drawbacks. Um, I, I'm struggling to think of benefits right now. I mean, at the state, you know, the the, the wider state system, uh, you know, provides that 
support for, for poorer people who wouldn't necessarily have had opportunities. But if, if we look at soccer, for example, and the long term development there, like all the all the the, the rules that have been it, 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 it's it's you know I, I'm I'm struggling to 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 describe this just because it's it's it, it's really complicated you know I'm I'm still today kind of conflicted over the whole thing you know a lot of a lot of the rules that China brings in the intention is noble for example they looked at the Chinese soccer and thought well they're not enough young people playing so they thought well yeah and and that's not something that's specific to China you know I, I'm I'm grew up in the UK and and uh, there's the people long lamented all these foreigners in the league and. Young English players aren't getting enough opportunity in the Premier League and, and our, their places are being taken. So we need to have a quota system. I mean, that's been talked about for many, many years. So it's not specific to China. Uh, but what they did here was into trying to promote Chinese players and give uh, younger players an opportunity was to mandate that three under 23 players at one stage had to play. But they didn't think through the implementation. And of course, immediately they had that 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 rule came into into force, then the clubs and the managers and, and all the management were thinking, how can we get around the rules? <laughs> you know, which is which is a fairly fairly common trait here. So, a lot of rules in China, but you know, there, there's all there's always a way to get around them. So, in some cases, that the players were started and then subbed off within a handful of minutes. They didn't even they didn't even pretend to say, oh, they're injured, we have to sub them off. They just said, all right, okay, <laughs> seven minutes up, right, come on. And then sometimes in the, on the other end, they'd fill the quota. They'd, they'd bring three players on in, in injury time at the end of the game. So they tick the box of getting more players, more younger players on the field. But year on year, the numbers of young players, the minute, the overall number of minutes went down from the previous season year on year. So it was counterproductive. As with many you know, laws here, whether it's sports, whether it's something else, I think there's often the intentions behind it are fine, uh, are noble uh, you know, and correct in many ways. But the implementation is the problem. Um, they're, they're brought in too quickly uh, with not enough thought. And uh, it's kind of obvious for, from the outside to, to see how it all, it's all going to go wrong. And usually it does. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the obviously the Olympics and politics are inseparable. And, you know, part of the, the whole uh, endeavor for the Chinese government is face and prestige. But you give examples in your book where the, the, the athletes are not really trained in advance about PR issues. They're not public speakers and they're not, you know, thinking of in terms of geopolitical terms, right? And and so they sometimes create awkward moments or even even some I mean, I think sometimes it's just created by the Chinese themselves. By themselves, you give example of of, uh, of Yang, who was what sport? I can't remember, but he was a, a uh, yeah. Uh, speed skating. Yeah, speed skating, right. Yeah, the female speed skater. And they yeah. ask and they ask her, uh, you know, uh, how do you feel about your victory or something? And she said something like, well, it's my dream. I, uh, once I, after I've accomplished this, I can be more confident and help my parents have a better life. And it wasn't the foreign media that exploded. It was the Chinese media and especially the officials saying, no, no, you can't, you know, being filial, you know, filial is all well and good, but you have to praise the party. The country. And, and she got a whole lot of shit. For for this thing, and there are many examples in your book. Lots of examples of PR disasters in your book. Are we going to be? Can we expect to see more of this, or have they learned their lesson? I expect to see more. I mean, if I if I just answer that last part first, I mean, uh, the Beijing Olympics. We are going to get numerous examples of Chinese athletes at press conferences being asked awkward questions about Xinjiang and related subjects by foreign journalists because it's the only example. The, the only chance they're going to get to do this. There's no access to, to these athletes for months and months and months ahead of time. 
and these days probably no access full stop. You know, this is their only chance. And, and there are a lot of journalists who are there not really to cover they're not particularly sports journalists. They're there to cover all the other issues as well. And they're stuck in a bubble. They can't get out and report because of the nature of, of, of these sort of pandemic Olympics. And it's going to be super awkward. I, I really struggle to imagine that Chinese athletes have had media training on how to handle Xinjiang related questions because it's just not covered in the media. So who's going to take that initiative to say we need to be prepared for this? It's just going to be super awkward. And there's going to be fights with, um, you know, uh, Chinese officials saying next question, next question. And then the IOC will kind of be stuck in the middle because the foreign journalists will be saying, well, this is supposed to be a you know free and open press conference. You know, it, it's going to be a nightmare. Now, of course, none of this will get played to to the Chinese public you know they won't none of this will, will make it through but it's gonna be it's gonna be awkward I think you know that's that's more specific to these Olympics because of the sort of the the geopolitical temperature and the build-up but in the past it's more just it's more just cultural differences I think often you know the 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 Chinese the Chinese athletes are given that sort of supporting uh wind from the from the media in the way that in the way that Chinese companies are given, you know, the, the favorable wins from 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 the state. But then, of course, when they go overseas, it doesn't quite work that way. And so for the first time, they're, they're being asked a tough question or, or a company is running into uh, potentially, you know, uh, where they get like favorable treatment back home, they suddenly get more equal treatment as we would see it um, overseas. And so there, there was a time in at the London Olympics, uh, Ye Shuen, a 16 year old swimmer had broken two world records and you know uh, the 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 press the uk press and the, and the global press were were basically casting doubt on this they thought who is she she must be t- she must be she must be doping uh there was no proof but um you know the 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 fact that she was so fast and 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 china's doping history i think was relevant in that context. It went back, you know, we're going back quite a few years. There hadn't been anything recently. And she was, of course, asked very awkward questions. Now she's 16 and and, and it's difficult for anyone. But she came across, she, she sort of, you know, gave the party line and, and I think, you know, just didn't come across particularly well. It certainly didn't help the situation. I mean, that that's a sort of a more a more serious example. But you look at you look at someone like Lina, the, te- the, the tennis star, who who is is not completely fluent in English, and I'm being incredibly harsh on someone. You know, it's not it's not um, in her native language, but but she she was funny, and you know, she was she would do on court interviews, and it was good enough that the whole stadium would be would be you know in in fits of fits of laughter because she was just really amusing and really natural and really genuine. And so you think from someone like Lena, you know, what what is possible? It doesn't have to be this way. Um, just with a little bit of of media training, you know, some of these athletes could genuinely become global stars uh, if they just engaged a little bit more with was expected. I, I suppose you know you have to play the game. Media is is a game. You have to you have to give them what they want to a certain extent. You know, I, I think we haven't seen too many Linas, and uh, and there aren't too many on the horizon. But I'd love to see more Chinese athletes sort of spread their wings a bit and become truly global sports stars uh, in the way that the athletes from other countries often become. A lot of it is the language, uh, but enough of them speak English, enough of them that are on tour. So so that's not necessarily uh, a, a proper drawback. But I, I think there is a lot more potential there. You know, speaking of the English, I, I remember many, many years ago watching an NBA game, and there's a clip of this somewhere, but you know, everyone was wondering about like Yao Ming's English, and there's a clip of him, I think it might have his first or second year, backpedaling on the court. And while there is no sound, you can read his lips, and his lips are clearly saying, do you think you can stop me? You can't stop me. And I'm like, I think his English is going to be okay. I think he's got, I think he's got this down. 
now. You know, you're, you're talking about this, the, the, the media bubble or the media inside the bubble. And I got to tell you, Mark, I, I don't know what you're hearing, but I, I think it's not just the athletes are going to have some trouble, the Chinese athletes. I think that there's, are we going to be starting hearing a lot of stories in coming out of the bubble that in this age of kind of decoupling, that a lot of the Chinese officials aren't totally sh- aware of attitudes and how people may react coming into China from outside who aren't familiar with the way things work here with our health codes, our cell phones, our constant COVID tests, and vice versa. A lot of the athletes are coming in, and really, I don't know if they're fully prepared for what they're about to about to be you know, when they enter the bubble, what that's going to be like. And we're all used to it. We live here. Given that the, a lot of the media aren't going to have a lot to write about outside the bubble, are we, uh, are we in for a, a tidal wave of kind of uh, snarky stories about things going wrong behind the scenes? I mean, what are you hearing? Yeah, I really think we are. I, I'd love to, to, you know, I first came here to cover the Olympics, the uh, 2008 Olympics. I, I've always been a big sports fan, never been had the chance to do that. So so I, I love the Olympics. I know not everyone does, but I, but I do. I'd love to be talking just about the sports. But I think, unfortunately, COVID and COVID-related issues are going to be front and center. So, for example, a headline the other day that, that said that the testing standards for testing positive or testing negative are different in different countries and that China basically has a stricter standard. So you could test negative before you board a flight. You could then, in theory, have a slightly lower level of virus on arrival, yet still test positive when it comes to the Chinese tests. So uh, some of the North American sports leagues, they use a, a level of um, you know either 30 or 35. Now, the Chinese level is 40. Uh, that, the, the higher you are, the less infectious you are. You know, the, it's, it's a tougher testing, testing schedule over here. So yeah, that's, that's going to cause some problems. It's inevitable, I think that that people are are um are testing positive in the bubble. I just think with with the the infectiousness that we've seen so far from from Omicron, it's going to get out. And I do think there's a couple of things here, but the Chinese teams are going to be in total isolation. They're going to be in a bubble within a bubble. And we've seen very little COVID so far in China. And so where they have been, there will have been basically zero. So the Chinese athletes, in my mind, aren't going to test positive. And some of the other athletes are going to test positive. I think just sheer weight of numbers. That will mean that a lot of people will start crying foul and think, well, why is it that all your athletes are clean and all ours are not? They won't necessarily buy the tests. They'll sort of think there's underhand things going on here. Equally, I think a lot of the the athletes from overseas, they're used to, uh, you don't necessarily have to get uh, negative tests. You just need to kind of be asymptomatic for a certain amount of time. So there is a policy where you can come back to competing if you test positive. First of all, you test positive, then you're in isolation. You can get back into the competition bubble. But I think just given given the way that the testing system is, is going to set up, they're going to be in isolation for too long. They'll start missing their, their races. And if, it, if we're talking about big stars, this is going to be a big, big story globally. You know, if some of the big American stars are, are basically feeling fine, but in isolation after a positive test, people will start to question the whole system and it's all rigged and, and it's just going to get a little bit ugly. And, and I think, unfortunately, some of these incidents are bound to happen just given what we've seen from 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 the virus recently and the, the the thousands of people coming in like something will get through and then how much it spreads is is remains to be seen but um it, it's gonna be it's gonna be looming if not front and center it's going to be looming in the background throughout 
We look back on the 2008 Olympics, and and uh, I'm sure you could speak a lot about that. But now it's 2022. They've sort of had their their big coming out party already, uh, and the 2008 was the big one. From what I hear about this particular Winter Olympics, there were a lot of competition for it uh, whenever it was the first uh, the competition was announced. But most of the candidates dropped out, and it seemed like the only two left was Beijing and Kazakhstan. <laughs> Almaty, yeah. you know. Uh, uh, I just wonder if this this kind of thing you just were talking about is is this is the luster and the patriotic joy and PR victory of the Olympics wearing off a bit for maybe all countries, but I mean for China, it seems like probably the enthusiasm enthusiasm must be waning a bit, especially in light of of the the sorts of PR problems with human rights issues and stuff that you just mentioned. You know, at some point, this has to be is this is the is there a cost benefit analysis here to, to think about? It's very expensive to host the Olympics, and most countries don't see economic benefit. And so, you know, when you're in democracies and you have to justify that from a city perspective or or, or whatever. Often the public is is quite against it, the, the local public, even if the, the national government wants it. There's only a certain number of countries of which China is most definitely one where the money doesn't matter at all. It's it's much more about the the show and the spectacle and 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 the political uh, you know gains that you, to be made. And so that's why I think a lot of the a lot of the countries dropped out. You know, given what's happening in Kazakhstan right now, the IOC are probably breathing a huge sigh of relief that that they did give it to. I mean, give it, gave it to Beijing. It, are the Olympics losing their luster? Well, for some, yes. And I think because, you know, we started with with six official bids for, for 2022. I don't think Beijing initially thought it was going to get it. Um, Oslo was, was in the running for the last three. And then when they pulled out, they were a strong favorite. Often what we've seen in the Olympics is you do like a setup bid. So you bid, you know, China had bid for the 2000 Olympics, which eventually went to Sydney uh, and then later came back with a, with a sort of a strengthened bid and won for 2008. And so we've seen that not just in China, but other countries as well. And I think that they were expecting maybe to get 2026. Uh, and it was, so this was kind of a setup. And then and then when things opened up, they thought, well, we can do this. But because of the lack of competitive bids, with everyone dropping out themselves, it wasn't the IOC saying your bid is not up to scratch. You haven't made the final shortlist. It was everyone else uh, dropping out. They've since changed the bidding process. So we had Brisbane awarded the 2032 games and it was a completely closed. There was no like open submission. They basically just said, hey, Brisbane, do you want it behind the scenes? And then they announced to everyone, we're going to recommend Brisbane. And then the 200 or so IOC members, you know, voted and hey, surprise, surprise, they said, yeah, okay, well, let's give it to Brisbane. Uh, no one else had a chance to bid for that. Also with with uh, when Paris 24 and, and uh, LA in, in 2028 were awarded, they were awarded at the same time so that, you know, they weren't seen as uh, competitors because it's very expensive just to launch a bid as well. It's millions of dollars, um, tens of millions of dollars, just, just, just to put that bid together. And so they wanted to uh, avoid scaring off cities because so many people had dropped out anyway. So, you know, I think we're in a slightly more healthy period right now because, you know, we do have Olympics lined up for the next four and, and the cities seem happy to have them. But yeah, gone are the days where you're going to have five or six really healthy competitive bids and, and the ISC gets to choose. So they've had to adapt. I think to a certain extent, both China and the IOC uh, just want to get through these games at this point. Uh, the buildup has been so fraught with, you know, with with diplomatic boycotts and, and you know, the human rights issues. And of course, COVID um, just just 
being a massive, massive challenge. You know, they want to just get it done. China just wants to get through without a hitch. The IOC, I'm sure, can't wait to get out of here and move on to somewhere a little bit more rosy. It's still a, a, a few uh, tense weeks, I think, f- uh, for the organizers lying ahead. Why do some Olympic sports or why do some sports matter more than others? And I, I feel like there's a backstory to this in the sense of sports be kind of equated to the health of the nation. And the historian me kind of thinks, you know, there are, there are authors who've done some more research on this than I have, of course, people like Susan Brunel, but this idea of training the body for the nation, you know, you go back to like the age of colonialism and imperialism and this idea of like the sick man of Asia. And even like, I think one of Mao's earliest essays was about physical fitness, physical education, that China was weak because people are weak. We, we, we wear these long flowy gowns and so we like leisurely movements and this is why we're a weak country, you know? And it is sort of odd that at a moment when everyone was kind of talking about socialism and anarchism, Mao's big prescription for China was don't skip leg day at the gym. But anyway, leaving that aside, sports has become this notion of like, training the body, transforming the body, and that this is a representation of the nation. And so I, I kind of wonder, is this why, or why do some sports seem to matter more? Why does a, a guy placing sixth place in a sprint matter more than all of the medals in, say, badminton? And why, do, you know, why, is, why does it feel like some sports are privileged? Does this go back to the body, or are there other reasons for this? I'll just provide some context to those who don't know, but Su Bing Tian, the, the Chinese sprinter, who was basically the most celebrated athlete at the Tokyo Olympics, he carried the flag for China at the end uh, based on his semi-final performance in the 100-meter semi-final because he, he, he had a personal best time and then had a not quite disastrous final, but finished right at the back of the field. It's the history that Chinese Chinese sports fans and, and Chinese Chinese people of all, of all kinds realize what is a global sport, what is truly competitive. They realize that the vast majority of, of top table tennis players are Chinese. If they're not actually representing China, they're, they're these days, they're, they're probably born in China and, and they've been recruited by another country. So so the World Table Tennis Championships is, is basically the national championships as far as they're concerned. So they love the sport and that's not, to, that's not to belittle table tennis, but it doesn't make them a global power when you're basically just winning your own national championships. Everyone plays soccer, for example, and they know that. And so that's why I think they want to have a, a strong soccer team because that would then put them at the top of the ranks. If you have, you know, a, a strong curling team then you might win an olympic medal but no one's going to be particularly impressed by that you know they, they always talk about uh, the 100 meters is, is sort of like the blue ribbon event it's like the the, the prime event at a, at a summer olympics and so to have someone who is competitive in that puts china at the top of the tree which is where they want to be which is where they feel they should be and where they they ought to be and they should have been there long ago um you know if they're the number two rising to number one in the in in economic stakes why aren't they you know number two rising to number one in, in basically every sport. They've kind of gamed the system in terms of uh, targeting these more um, you know, niche sports where, where they're, they're less competitive and, and able to, to win gold medals. But they know that they're gaming the system, right? They're not, they're not, you know, they're not fooling themselves ultimately. Um, and that's that's to, to that's the, the you know, to your point, why are some sports and, and medals worth more than others? Well, it's just because how are they regarded on the global stage? Does anyone care about, um, and again, no disrespect to the athletes involved who, who work very hard to, to become 
world and Olympic champions. But does anyone really care about a, a sort of a shooting gold medalist versus versus some of the other sports, whether it, whether it's swimming, which is kind of high profile, whether it, whether it's uh, you know sprinting and running and and track and field and and some of the others as well. And you know, I, I think the answer is clear. Yeah, I, that sort of reminds me. I have a cultural question. Um, as someone who's been here, and we've all been here a long time, and seen the competitiveness that's sort of drilled into Chinese students, but there's this phenomenon you mentioned in your book, um, which is that you know when an athlete is on top and they're winning the gold, they're they're like gods. But if they if they just come with a bronze or a silver, then the the, op- the reaction is inexplicably hostile. It's incredible. You give lots of examples there where people you know uh, got hate mail or got their your, their uh, car win- windows smashed for just coming home with a second or third place. Uh, is that what do you see that is that specific to China? Do other countries have this reaction? And if so, it would, you know, based on what you know about China, and I have some theories, what do you think that this tells us about their atti- attitude towards competitiveness and, and athleticism and these sorts of issues? Because it seems very Chinese to me in a way. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I mean, one of the one of the the, the kind of the, the counter examples I give, you know, as I said, as, as a Brit, Kelly Holmes was was a was an eight hundred meter runner um, from the UK, and she had terrible injuries, and she was a very popular runner, and she managed to uh, to, to kind of over overcome a, a really bad Achilles injury and get back in time uh, much much quicker than, than 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 all the doctors were saying. Everyone thought she was out of the Olympics, and she managed to get a bronze, and she was just you know crying tears of joy, and, and honestly, I think the whole nation. Back in the UK, was was crying tears of joy watching her, and she got a bronze medal. But it's it meant so much, and people were able to uh, sort of associate with her as a person, as a human, and just so much emotion that she'd poured into it was exuding from her performance, and and the fact that she celebrated being basically the you know the third best person in the world at that particular event. But she felt like it was just you know it was her it was her Everest, uh, and 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 rightly so given what she'd been through. Whereas for China, the context is different because there's so many gold medals that 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 the, the expectation is just oh we got another gold or we got her you know shrug our shoulders we got five golds today and so you don't even really know who the people are and so why do you pay any attention to to, to silver and I think the pressure on these athletes to perform in that kind of system if you're not gold you're no one um Shuli Jia the sailor I mentioned before she told a really funny story where she was talking to her parents and her dad said yeah when when you won gold I was just kind of like oh that's pretty cool that's great uh, but it was when you were named as the uh, uh, as the flag carrier at the the closing ceremony that's the night I couldn't sleep because China has so many gold medalists it wasn't I didn't really see it as a big deal I was like what your daughter won a gold medal at the Olympics you didn't see it as a big deal I mean I get the I get his point uh, but it was a, it was an extra level of honor so to become the best of you know uh, of the Chinese nation uh, there's only one flag you know flag <laughs> flag carrier that is that's the that's the context that's the background but what I would say is that you know we 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 do see things changing. Uh, I've noticed things changing. Now, it's not a straight line. Of course, whenever you get to an Olympics, as much as, as the, the the messaging these days is is a little bit more about, hey, you know, we want to have a more more uh, healthy attitude to this and, and we want to uh, move away from our gold at all costs. Of course, if you're a, you know, a sports leader and you're tasked with, with winning as many medals and you're going to be judged on the number of medals that you win. And so you can't really have consistently, don't worry about the medals, but make sure you win as medals, many, as many medals as you can at the same time. And so I think there's, there is a conflict there, but we do see people, you know, there, there is kind of a, like a backlash, if you will, when, when people are getting criticized for, for only getting, um, silver and we, we had, 
you know, there was a there was a a, a rifle shooter in in, uh, in 2008 who, who won silver and and was extremely upset on the podium. And there was a lot of sympathy, you know, a lot of sympathy for this because because in the past they would have potentially had the hate mail or you know like like the disdain, which is probably worse. Um, you know, like oh, we 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 don't think you know you're nothing because 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 you're not gold. I think there was a lot of sympathy for this person who had tried. You know, they tried their best and and they'd come up short. And there's no shame in that. Um, so I do see attitudes changing, um, but it's not a straight line. Well, Mark, he is the China Sports Insider, and the new book is Sporting Superpower: An Insider's View on China's Quest to Be the Best. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. You're going to be covering the Olympics from outside the bubble. Is that right, or is that correct? That is correct. I, I did have an opportunity to go inside the bubble, but uh, it's 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 basically like going into a separate country because if you if you go in for twenty minutes and come out, you have to quarantine for three weeks. And the Olympics themselves only last for for you know two and a bit weeks. And I didn't really want to uh, do another quarantine. I've done three already, so um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cover it from outside this time. <laughs> Well, we we love the book and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, We hope to have you back this sometime later after the Olympics. We can talk more about what happened, what are going to be the sports stories going forward. But uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you, David, as well. And uh, for all of you out there, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's another episode of Barbarian at the Gate.